0: Hi everybody! Welcome back to What's the Crime with Grania and Gemma. So for today's story, this is actually an Irish story. This is a story of Esther, Jessica, and Frank McCann. I feel like you do know this
1: story. Yeah, definitely. I think most people in Ireland know this story.
0: Yeah, this story. It happened in the nineties, but. It has actually come to light again in the media in the last couple of years. So on Sunday the 10th of March 1991, Jeanette McCann was rushed into labour and birthed a beautiful little baby girl. At just five point and two ounces, she was to be called Jessica. So Jeanette's sister-in-law, Esther, had been by her side for the whole birth. So Esther was married to Jeanette's brother, who was called Frank. But Jeanette and Esther, like they were very close and they became even more close when Jeanette became pregnant. She moved in with Frank and Esther and she actually decided that Frank and Esther would make loving parents to her baby. So she herself, like she wasn't married, she just wasn't ready to be a mother. And Frank and Esther, they didn't have any children and she knew that they would just make loving, caring parents to her baby and they just came to the decision that Frank and Esther would adopt the baby, would adopt baby Jessica. So Jeanette and the baby were discharged from hospital on that Thursday and Jeanette moved out. She resumed her pre-pregnancy life and Frank and Esther took to caring for baby Jessica. So for Esther, this was like the beginning of a phase in her life where she just longed for like she was so so happy she kept a diary and she recorded and discussed like just her joy and how excited she was and I think that her plan was one day to you know show Jessica and like recount her life. Oh that's actually such a nice idea. Isn't that a lovely idea? Um, So Esther and Frank could kind of be described as like opposites to each other. Uh, Esther was one of a family of four from country Tremor in, in County or it's not County from Tumor in County Waterford. Um, her father Thomas died young leaving his widow Bridget to raise the children. She went to University College Dublin uh, to study psychology. She moved in with her sister Marion. Um, the two girls had been very close growing up and they remained really close into adulthood as well. They would talk to each other like nearly every single day and in those days like mobile phones and internet wasn't like it wasn't easy to yeah, keep yeah. contact that, that much but they made it happen so in her second year in college she kind of concluded that psychology wasn't for her and um, her interest was switching toward computers so she saw the benefit of the internet and emails and all that stuff like long before most people um, which I think is so smart considering a lot of people probably just wrote that off as like yeah, some definitely. sort of phase. She's like ahead of her time. And now it's like such a, it's such an important part of everybody's life. Uh, in the mid 80s, Esther was in a relationship with a man called Paul. Now, Paul kind of wanted her to emigrate. He was moving to Australia and he wanted her to emigrate with him. But she just felt that that was too far from family which of course it's so far and again in those days there was no Facetime, there was yeah, no it wasn't as easy to stay in like so much contact if he did go away. exactly and she was really close to her family so she declined and he left on his own but not long after that frank mccann began to show interest in her so he had been like a friend of her and paul's and um Marion, who, like I said, was Esther's sister, she kind of described him as a bit more conservative than Esther. He was born in 1960 to a family of five from Dublin's South Side. When he left school, he followed his father into the Irish Distillers Company as an apprentice cooper. Have you heard of a cooper? Would you know what that was? I've heard of it, but I don't really know what it is. No, I didn't know what it was. I actually had to look it up um, online because I didn't hear of it before. It's described online as a person trained to make wooden casks, barrels, buckets, tubs, troughs, and other similar containers from timber staves that were usually heated or steamed to make them pliable. So some some sort of trade. Okay. Um, in an article in the Irish Times in 1985, he said he was the fourth generation of his family to go into Cooper. And to become a Cooper, you had to be like the son or grandson of an already operating Cooper. That is so random. I know. In 1991, he went into partnership with his brother to purchase a public house in Blessington, County Wicklow, and they renamed it the Cooperage in honor of their family trade. So to those that knew Frank, he was like a confident man. Um, he didn't drink or smoke and he invested a great deal of his time in swimming. So swimming was like his big passion outside of work. He swam at international level and then after retiring, he returned to coaching. He rose through the ranks and um, swimming administration to become president of the Leinster branch of the Irish Amateur Swimming Association. So he knew Esther um, when she was seeing Paul, like they socialized in the same company around Dublin. They had a lot of the same friends. But then kind of when Paul was out of the picture, Frank kind of swept in and made his move. Great friend. (laughs) He was 26. So he was four years younger than Esther um, the couple, uh, they got together and they ended up buying a house on Butterfield Avenue in Ruthfarnham. And they did eventually get married then on the 22nd of May 1987. So four years into the marriage and Esther um, and Frank hadn't had any children. So Esther did develop like a, a very common health problem an overactive thyroid, which can have implications for fertility. Um, but then obviously there was a the new addition to the McCann household, baby Jessica. So Esther like threw herself into motherhood. Her sister, Marion, um, she had two sons, Brian and James and a daughter as well called Esther, named after Esther, her godmother and plans were set in motion for Frank and Esther to officially adopt baby Jessica. So on the 20th of May, which was just uh, over 2 months after Jessica was born, uh, Frank and Esther lodged an application with the adoption board. So usually if um the adoption is within a family, it's like really just a matter of formality um Jeanette had like nominated her brother and sister-in-law as the adoptive parents which should have meant that this application would be dealt with very quickly um however there did seem to be some sort of an issue and the application kind of stalled the summer of 1991, unfortunately, darkened for Esther's family because her 16-year-old nephew, who, like I said, was one of the sons of Marion, developed health problems and tests showed a possible tumour in his leg. So this, of course, had a... Oh, my God, of course. It had a, had a, took a toll on the family. And Esther documented in her diary how, you know how it happened and how she felt on friday the 19th of july 1991 5 p.m tests show a malignant shimmer on his leg to be treated in the matter not a day to be forgotten for any of us possibly the black- blackest day in a long time things will get better and James will be well again after treatment so that's her like writing her diary she's obviously optimistic and hoping you know things are going to be okay she's
1: obviously so close as well to her nephews she is and niece uh
0: summer turned into autumn without a result from the adoption board Jeanette who was um the birth mother at baby Jessica, she was kind of getting impatient, even herself, on behalf of her brother and sister-in-law. So she kind of is like, you know what, I'm gonna make some independent inquiries as of the delay, because it was really Frank that was taking care of the, you know, the process. Oh, of right. The okay, adoption. so
1: it wasn't Jeanette or Esther. No, it was, it was mostly her. Frank, yes.
0: Okay. So by the end of the year, there was still not really anything. So Esther was getting impatient too, but she was so sort of just consumed by the delight in the new baby her new adopted daughter and she yeah, was also was so busy
1: as well so busy yeah.
0: and not to mention she was also heartbroken for her you know her nephew because Who's she was close yeah,
1: yeah and
0: surely the like the adoption wasn't really at the forefront of her mind she had a lot going on yeah, you know yeah um and it did turn out unfortunately that James had bone cancer oh my God. so he did get treatment and after treatment he was in remission. But the prospect of secondaries, of course, like loomed over them. Like what a worry that would yeah. be. And um, all the family were really concerned about his condition. On the 3rd of July, 1992, Frank McCann actually reported a gas leak at their home in Butterfield Avenue. So on board Gash, who is the Irish um, gas company. Yeah. They um were dispatched to the house, but they didn't discover any any leaks. Two weeks later, on the sixteenth of July, Frank McCann phoned Board gash again at ten fifty three a.m. to report another suspected leak. So um a fitter was dispatched immediately and arrived at eleven ten a.m. and he discovered a class A leak. So this required immediate action and a pipe um on a pipe leading into the house. And about a week after that, Board Gash upgraded the gas meter in the house. So one of the adaptations of this required was the installation of two like solder joints close to the meter. On the 26th of July, Frank again reported another leak once again. Board gash sent out a fitter, but this time there was no leak discovered, even though they did like intensive investigations. On the following day, which was the 27th of July, James was admitted to hospital again for further tests and his mother, Marion, accompanied him to the matter private hospital and made arrangements to stay overnight. So meanwhile, Esther and um, Marion's other sister, who was called Phyllis, she was a nun and she was over visiting from England. Obviously to see everybody, to see James, to see baby Jessica, she you know went to the home in Butterfield Avenue you know wanted to just catch up talk to Esther they talked for a few hours but she realized she kind of noticed Esther was exhausted like really really tired and kind of just put it down to the fact that she was dealing with a lot yeah dealing with a lot yeah so she's like look let's just call it a night but earlier the next morning Esther woke with a blinding headache and she noticed um a strong smell of cooking onions and gas yes It took her a couple of minutes to realize that there was gas flooding through the house. Now, she's so smart in what she does next. She goes straight into Jessica's room, picks the baby up, immediately goes out to the front door, didn't turn on any lights. She had routine training on what to do in the event of a gas leak. So once she got outside, she got into her car. She didn't even turn on the engine. She just released the handbrake, allowed the car to kind of roll down onto the road from the drive. And then when she was a safe distance from the house, she rang Frank, who was at the Coop Bridge, the pub um, that he owned. On her mobile phone and reported the leak at 55 a.m. He reported the leak. Sorry, on the twenty eighth of July seven fifty five a.m. She was
1: so smart to do that. Like I, I would panic. I would get in the car and start the car. I wouldn't even think to. Or um, even
0: like you wouldn't even. You just automatically go light. to turn on a light. Right. Like if
1: it was dark, you
0: wouldn't even like. I honestly don't even think I would have known that. I would have just turned yeah. the light on. I, I don't even think I would have realized that. I always just would have thought a match.
1: I know I like you just want to get out of the house but I wouldn't even think of doing all that stuff on the way out.
0: Um so this time the board gash uh they came again when Frank reported it and they found a major leak. So the hallway and many rooms contained like a massive level of gas enough to cause an explosion if a match was lit or a light was switched oh my on. God.
1: So she really
0: She really had a lucky escape. Yeah. So they had a like an narrow an escape and the board undertook an investigation to determine how this could happen because like i said they had put in a brand uh, new thing yeah. yeah um and the fitter said that the, the two member i said it was like soldered joints yeah um the, when he came back out to investigate they were like completely parted um and that could only really have happened by the separation of like heat so now the two leaks at Butterfield Avenue in combination with all those false alarms was starting to sort of raise suspicions with board gash. Like they were like, how is this happening? What's going on? And the last leak was by far the most serious. Okay, so I'm just going to briefly interrupt this episode because we just want to say a very quick thank you to our sponsor for Season 3, the Muff Liquor Company. So before you start sniggering, (laughs) Muff is actually a village in Donegal and they have a liquor company. So get your head out of the gutter. (laughs) The Muff Liquor Company is an award-winning premium handcrafted Irish spirit company. You can purchase six times distilled handcrafted Irish gin Whiskey and vodka, and I mean, we have personally tasted (laughs) all of the above numerous times. (laughs) So we can say firsthand that they are definitely the best. But don't just take our word for it. You can order online at themuffliquorcompany.com.
1: Hi, what can I get you? Hi, uh,
0: can I get two sparkling waters and two uh,
1: margaritas? No. Two mo... Mojitos.
0: No, sorry, Uh, just two
1: mo... Moscow mules? Having
0: trouble asking for our famous vodka and gin by name? No problem, because
1: now you can buy your favourite muff liquor online. Fancy enjoying a bit of muff at home? Order now at themuffliquorcompany.com and use discount code What's the Crime for 10% off. The Muff Liquor Company. Come for the name, stay for the taste.
0: Over 18s. Drink responsibly. Visit drinkaware.ie So please do let us know if you enjoy a nice gin and tonic or a nice hot whiskey. listening to the next episode of What's the Crime? So, uh, Marion was in the hospital when she heard what happened. Like I said, she was, um, James's mom and she was there with him and she was shocked. She could not, like, she rang Frank, she was terrified and he's like, yeah, I know. Like, you know, so scary. Esther needs to be more careful.
1: Well, like, how can she be more careful if, yeah, like, why can, she didn't go down and like.
0: Do anything yeah, that she, she shouldn't do. She not have
1: done anything better in what, and like what happened. Yeah. yeah.
0: Two days later, Esther wrote in her diary, so this is the 30th of July, my darling daughter, Jessica, you have grown and become a beautiful child. You have been walking now for a little over a week and have given up holding onto the walls in search of your one bit of independence. Lots of talk and every day brings new joys of every sort. Insight, sound, speech, and movement. Ten teeth to show for all the months of painful teething, which gave you some problems with infections and all sorts. Nana's little darling in everything you do. Your own darling James has had the most terrible news imaginable today, and he doesn't even know it yet. Marion is in pieces, and I am not so good myself. Two tumors on his left lung to be operated on at the end of July. No end to this cruelty. Oh, jeegers. That is cruel. And that, like, that diary entry, I think it also, like, you can... Her delight in how much she loves that wee baby. Like, she sounds so... She's just in awe of her. And then she's so sad then. She's, like, such a good mother. I know. And auntie. I know. In August, Esther was... She was just feeling down. Like, there was still no word on the adoption. And also, the prospect for James's recovery was bleak. Early on the 11th of August she woke to the sound of the phone ringing. So she jumps up but she sees the foot at the foot of her bed, an electric blanket on fire. So she jumps out of the bed, dices the flames and answers the telephones. So the, tel- the, the the call was actually a guard from Blessington inquiring where Frank was because an alarm in the have gone off had uh, gone off and was ringing like like crazy. So she had just assumed he was there, that he, that he was in the pub. But more bizarre than that, she's like, look, I can't concentrate. Like, why is there an accurate blanket at the bottom of my bed? How had it got there? Because the last time she'd actually seen it, it had been on the back of a chair in the spare room. So now at this point, she's like doubting herself. She's like, is my mind playing tricks on me? Like, is, why are all these strange things happening? And not only that, there was also strange things happening to Frank at the same time. On the 13th of August, he reported to Farnham Garda Station that he had received threatening phone calls to his home and a complaint was logged. Later that day, he walked into Blessington Garda Station and reported an anonymous call to a pub So around that time, um, there was another pub in Blessington received a call from an anonymous caller telling him he'd better pay or he'd be burned out of his business. On the 31st of August, there was a slogan, quote, burn you bastard, end quote, painted on the rear wall of the premises.
1: Right, strange.
0: Yeah. Uh, Towards the end of the month, Esther's like look. What is going on with the adoption process? She's like, I'm going to sort this out. I'm sick and tired of waiting. What is this delay? So she rang the Coombe Hospital and she arranged for a meeting on the 4th of September just to sort of retrace the steps that had been taken since Jessica's birth to see if she could spot or like understand what was causing the delay. Yeah. Uh, on the 3rd of September, 1992, which was a Thursday, Marion was going down to her home, uh, place of tremor with James she kind of just wanted to take him home for a few days you know give him a few days near the sea in Waterford where they grew up um now she w- asked if Esther wanted to come with them but she had that appointment that she'd arranged at the Coombe hospital the following day which meant she'd stay in dublin and also she had arranged to give a word processing class that evening in her home so like i said she was really good with computers and stuff like that she was teaching people you know um how to do things so she was teaching like a young parent helen palmer at half eight that night uh, that Lady Helen Palmer was there and they were started that lesson and Jessica was tucked up in bed upstairs and Frank was at work in the pub in Blessington. So at about 10 o'clock, um, she'd finished with the word processing lef- lesson and that Lady Helen Palmer left the household. So Frank then returned soon after that because he took his break um, from work, from the pub. He noticed a suspicious mark on the back door and he phoned the local guard um, and told them about it. He and Esther, um, they had like a cup of tea, watched a film and then he returned back to work sometime before 11 o'clock. At half twelve that night, he went to a chip shop in Blessington where he waited for about ten minutes for his order of whatever he was getting, chips. At around 1.45am that morning, a neighbour of Butterfield Avenue heard, heard a loud bang followed by another. Some minutes later, a carload of people returning from a wedding in County Wicklow spotted flames from the house in Butterfield Avenue and the emergency services were called. Neighbours gathered on the lawn outside the house but by that time there was no question of anybody attempting a rescue because the flames were large and the heat was intense. Somebody did get a ladder and it was raised to a first floor window but any attempt to scale it would have been dangerous and nobody appeared at the window to climb down. At some stage during those minutes, Frank McCann came on the scene. He was distraught, saying, My wife and baby are in there. As the fire intensified, he made to go into the house, but neighbours grabbed and restrained him. Eventually, the fire was brought under control. Esther's body was found on the landing. Oh, it was believed she could have tried to save herself by jumping out of the first four-bedroom window, but she was not going to leave baby Jessica oh my behind. Oh God, so sad. She sustained extensive burns and died from inhalation of carbon monoxide and baby Jessica still had her soother in her mouth, mouth when her body was taken from her cot. How heartbreaking. It's
1: just unbelievable.
0: Immediately after the fire, Borgash conducted an examination. At 3.15am, um, they reported that there was no leak in the system at the house around that same time down in tremor marion was awoken by the sound of her mother-in-law crying her husband had rang down with the awful news like imagine getting that news oh, oh my god your sister and your I niece. i know just before 7 30 a.m a detective arrived a detective arrived in Tallaght garda station he and superintendent pat king attended the scene in Rathfarnham. Already they were suspicious about the fire. The intensity of the flames and the report that a neighbour had heard two loud bangs suggested there was more to it than a tragic accident. Suspicions were heightened when the initial examination of the scene uncovered evidence of an accelerant like petrol. A blowtorch and a gas container were recovered from the hallway of the house. As of yet, there were no suspects and the Gardaí began their inquiries. A few hours later, the Coop barman opened the premises unaware of what had happened during the night. Soon, the phone rang and he answered and the caller asked whether McCann had gotten the bad news yet. The barman put down the receiver and he felt that the, the caller had been attempting to disguise his voice. Okay. Over the following days, um, the, they were preparing for the funerals. The O'Brien family wanted Esther to be buried in Tremor with her father. Her funeral mass took place in Mount Carmel Church and the coffin containing the bodies of Esther and Jessica was received into the Holy Cross Church in the seaside town of Tremor where Esther had been baptised, had made her first communion and had been confirmed. At the mass, Frank had to be helped up the aisle by Phyllis, Esther's sister. After the burial, he returned to Dublin. Frank wasn't available for interview by the guards until the evening of Saturday the 6th of September. Two officers took a statement from him. He recounted how he had been at home earlier in the evening and then returned to the Coop Bridge. He worked the rest of the evening, bought some chips and eventually locked up at around 1.30am and as he was repro- approaching home he saw the flames and ran up to join the neighbours on their front lawn. He told the guardee that there had been a suspicious mark on the back door. Already the investigation had been informed by officials from Board Gash about the series of gas leaks and false alarms. Then, uh, early uh, the following week, out of the blue, something was presented to the guardie that put a spanner that completely changed the course of the investigation. An official from the Adoption Board contacted Tala Garda Station. He had seen a report in the newspaper that the fire was being treated as suspicious, which had alerted him to the case. The detectives visited the adoption board for a full briefing. It turns out that the reason that there was such a delay with the adoption process for Frank and Esther, when it should have been relatively straightforward, was because of Frank. So remember how I had explained that Frank had become president of the Leinster branch of the Irish Amateur Swimming Association. He was a swimming coach. It was his passion outside of work. Yeah. He had actually impregnated a 17-year-old girl. Uh, I read in an article from the Irish Independent that she actually had learning disabilities. Uh, Two of his contemporaries in swimming, George Gibney and Dario Rourke, were eventually unmasked as child sex abusers who preyed on young swimmers as young as the age of 10 years old. So that hadn't come out at this time, but that is just to sort of let you know the extent of what was going on here. Now, no evidence emerged that Frank was involved to the same extent that they were, but he was responsible for a teenager's pregnancy. Yeah, that's not... Like, a vulnerable teenager at that? It is so wrong. No words. The baby was born in August 1987, just a few months after his marriage to Esther, Frank agreed to settle the girl's hospital bills. An anonymous payment of between five and six hundred pounds was also made to the girl's father, which was believed to have come from Frank. When the news spread that Frank and Esther had planned to adopt baby Jessica, the mother of the 17-year-old that had given birth to Frank's baby became aware of these plans. And on the 16th of April 1991, she phoned the adoption board to formally object to the adoption of baby Jessica by Frank McCann, obviously because of his conduct with her own daughter. So this was the cause of the long delay and uh, esther and frank's adoption process esther wasn't even aware of any of this and neither were any of frank's family so um like she wasn't even aware that there was a problem in the adoption process sometime in the early summer of 1992 it became obvious to frank that the adoption board was going to reject his and esther's application uh this And then this in turn would potentially out his whole secret. And it was around this time that the gas leak started to happen. Oh my God. So a picture was forming. The gas leaks, the threats that had been called into the pub, indicated that there had been some level of planning in this. It was all him. Marion, who was Esther's sister, she suspected Frank immediately. Through her grief, she believed her sister had been murdered and she also brought this suspicion to the guardie. It didn't fit into the typical standard of a wife killer, like they didn't have really any money problems, the marriage wasn't considered particularly rocky, there was no evidence of domestic abuse, the only real sore point appeared to be the adoption. Guards weren't sure if this was enough to drive a man to murder his wife and child, Marian said he should have known Esther would forgive him. If he knew her at all, he would have known that was her nature and they, would have, they wouldn't have lost Jessica. There was no question of that. His character suggested that he would have worried about the consequences outside his home. If it was to emerge that he had had a sexual relationship with a teenage swimmer, he would be finished in the sport. His image as a confident and highly competent individual, and the opportunity that his role in swimming afforded him, would be destroyed. Then there was the pub. How would that suffer as if that secret was uncovered? Um, most likely, like people would, of course, be disgusted that he had impregnated a vulnerable teenager.
1: Oh, he. I just have no words for this.
0: On the 24th of September, the guardie announced that they were now treating the fire as suspicious. By then, Frank must have been fully aware that he was the main suspect. Marion recalls that he would be in and out of their home every other day asking all sorts of questions about the guards and what they thought. Like, bear in mind, Marion is convinced that he killed her sister who she adored and her niece. And like having him in and out of your home. Yeah, like. Yeah. She was feeling so panicky and nervous and afraid, um. And they had to go along with his like grief-stricken husband act while they suspected him, um. And also all of his questions relating to the guardie, yeah. like he's trying to figure out what they think, what they know, and at the same time, that the family was preoccupied with another pressing matter. Per James, his prognosis was bad, and Marion, going through all of this stress of course, wanted to spend as much time oh as God. possible with her sex son. This is just so
1: sad on so many levels. On the
0: morning of the 4th of November, the guardy had conducted an experiment with the blowtorch and gas cylinder attempting to replicate the fire. It was a culmination of a number of experiments designed to clarify exactly how the fire was started. The experiment was seemed satisfactory and a, de- a decision was taken to arrest Frank. He was questioned for two days. He made a number of statements including an admission that he had started the fire which could be considered rambling even co- incoherent. After he had made his statement he could no longer be contained and he left the station. He booked himself into St. John of God's psychiatric hospital claiming he was suffering from a nervous breakdown. So the guardy that were interviewing him, they felt like everything that he was saying was calculated. Yeah. Like that he was figuring out his next move, acting incoherent so that he could in turn, uh, you know, like book himself in so that he would be able to kind of yeah. pass this off as him having a nervous breakdown. Yeah. Um, the Gardee consulted with the Director of Public Prosecutions and a decision was taken to continue gathering evidence because the case was not of a standard that would point to a good chance of conviction. And seeing as Frank was not regarded as a serious flight risk, he was left to, at, at large. So, on the 5th of April, James Leonard, who was Esther's nephew, lost his battle with cancer. He died um, with his family in his home around him and in the hours before he died, he asked his uncle if Frank McCann was ever going to pay for what he had done to Esther and Jessica.
1: Oh, what have this family been through? It's un-
0: unimaginable. To ease his nephew's mind, his uncle told him that he had already been arrested. He was arrested and charged in April 1993, um, but then that... Trial was suspended, and the second trial was in 1996, where he was found guilty and sentenced to two concurrent life sentences. Over the decades, Esther's family have always dreaded the day he would be released. In July 2022, he was photographed, um, aged 62, walking alone and unsupervised from Mountjoy Prison to a charity. Um, run training center in the south inner city where it is understood he is doing a course to assist people with a criminal conviction.
1: Bear in mind, he's never really showed any remorse. And he should not be allowed. I don't, Whatever this whole legal system, he should not be allowed to be walking around the streets. I think None. it's so disrespectful to her family. To Esther and her family. Like, not only did he take the life of his wife premeditated he had planned he put so much into this trying to and their 18 month old daughter he's he's it's just so there's no coming back from that he's sick um esther's
0: sister marian leonard um said in an article he's a cold-blooded murderer how can he be allowed to walk the streets of the city is incomprehensible he's not even tagged he was given a life sentence and a whole life sentence seems right for anyone who has killed a child So most of the information that I got for today's episode comes from a book I read called Love You To Death by Michael Clifford and also from some online articles um, from the Irish Independent. So thanks so much for listening guys. As usual uh, we will be back next week with a brand new episode and thanks so much for listening. Talk to you then. Bye.